Well, good morning again. Uh, as we have heard and sung and prayed this morning already, um, this is Pentecost Sunday. It is the day that the church remembers and celebrates that 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, he kept his promise. He kept his promise to send the Spirit to us, to his church. And so we're going to look at Luke's account of the day that that happened in Acts 2. So I'm going to read Acts 2, verses 1 through 13 for us, and you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed, or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, And visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, I ask that you would be happy to use this word that we have read and heard together by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you'd be happy to use this word to speak to us again, to take us by the hand and to lead us again to Jesus, that you would show us his grace and that as a people you would change us by it. And we pray this in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, sometime uh, in the early 2000s, I don't remember uh, exactly when it was, uh, I rented a copy of Jim Jarmusch's film Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. Uh, Maybe some of you have seen it. Uh, Forrest Whitaker is in that movie, and he plays a mob hitman, but it's a mob hitman with a bit of a twist. He follows the ancient code of the samurai while he is carrying out his contract, so he's a noble hitman or something like that. And I know that the premise uh, sounds a lot like a bunch of crime movies that have been made, but this one was made by Jim Jarmusch, and I expected something different. right? If you've ever seen any of his films, you know that they can be really minimalist and a little bit strange, always a little bit strange. They don't often follow a straight chronological timeline. So I didn't know exactly what to expect when I popped this movie in. And for the first 20 minutes or so of the movie, I was completely hypnotized. What I experienced when I was watching that were only the images and only the music. 
right? There wasn't any ambient sound. There was absolutely no dialogue. Scene after scene after scene kept going by. And I just kept thinking to myself how amazing it was that no one was saying anything. I mean, even when the characters' mouths were moving, you couldn't hear anything. Um, it was just silence. It was just images and just music. Now, I had seen a bunch of this guy's movies before, and I just kept thinking to myself, wow, this one is way out there, so challenging, so gutsy to do this, not to have any dialogue in it. And I started to wonder, what in the world does this thing mean? What, what's going on here? What am I seeing? What does it mean? I keep seeing these images. I keep hearing this cool music, but I have no idea what it's supposed to mean. My mind was working in overdrive to try to construct some meaning or some sense out of what I was seeing. And after about 10 more minutes, something dawned on me. And I went to the setup menu of the DVD. <laughs> and I realized I, I had inadvertently chosen the soundtrack only audio option. <laughs> I had turned off all of the sound and the dialogue, and it was blowing my mind. <laughs> now, to this day, I don't remember a whole lot about that movie, which I did go back and watch as it was intended to be seen. But what I do remember was the experience of those first 20 or 30 minutes and trying so hard to figure out what it all meant. And I bring this up because that idea is at the very heart of the story of the first Pentecost that we just read and heard together. Maybe you caught it when I read it. These great crowds witness these sights and hear these sounds, and they're there for what those first Christians said and did and, and saw what they were doing. And Luke tells us that they were amazed and they were perplexed when they saw all of these things, and they said to one another, What does this mean? And what I want us to see this morning is that God was communicating something profound at Pentecost. And it is something that has deep meaning for every single one of us here this morning in whatever place we find ourselves. So here's how Luke starts the story. He starts by saying, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And those are really important details, and they're important first because it means that these first Christians took Jesus seriously, and they were being faithful to what he asked them to do. They were together in one place. Now, we looked at Acts 1 together last week, and if you were here, you might remember, at least in the reading of Acts 1, that before Jesus ascended, he told his followers that they had one job. They had one job for the time being. And that job was to hang out in Jerusalem and wait. Their job was to wait. He didn't tell them how long they were going to need to wait. He just told them to wait. And that is what they have been doing for the last 10 days. They're just waiting. Now, I don't know how that sounds to you, but I have to say that doesn't sound like the most thrilling of a plan. To be honest, it doesn't sound like even the most useful of a thing to do, to just kind of sit and wait and pray and be quiet, right? Stop running around, stop doing, and just be and be quiet and wait and pray. And I think the reason that it doesn't sound like the most thrilling thing to me or the most useful thing to me, and to whatever extent that's how it sounds to you, 
I think that the reason is because we are surrounded by that mostly unspoken rhythm of our culture that says that people who matter are people who run around and do a bunch of really important things. We like to think that about ourselves, and maybe even more tellingly, we really want other people to think that about us. And so maybe this is one of the things that Pentecost means for people like us. It begins as good news for tired people. I don't know, I don't know why Jesus asked them to wait. And I, I don't know what role that played in the grand scheme of things. I just know that he asked them to wait. And I know that again and again in the Gospels, you see this in Jesus' life, that as busy as his life was, and he was incredibly busy and incredibly active, he took time to just stop doing and to be and to pray and to listen and to wait. And if that was essential for Jesus to live the life that he lived, we can be certain that it is essential for people like us too. And if that sounds, you know, if stopping and just being and listening and waiting and praying, if that sounds like a kind of exotic or foreign thing to do, if it's been a long time since you've ever done anything like that, then it would probably be good to hear Jesus' word, wait. So that's, that's what they were doing. There were, Luke tells us, about 120 of them, and they were all gathered together in one place, just cooling their jets and waiting and praying. And then the day of Pentecost rolls around, and their waiting is about to end in spectacular fashion. Now, Pentecost was one of the big three annual agricultural festivals for God's people. Pilgrims from all over would stream into Jerusalem to offer the first fruits of their grain harvest to God in the temple. And they did this as a way of first expressing gratitude to God for his faithfulness up to that point, for giving them the first fruits. And it was also as a way that they humbly prayed that God would continue in his faithfulness and blessing as the rest of the harvest came in. So that's what they were there for. All of those pilgrims were there in Jerusalem for. That's the day, and Luke tells us this is what happened Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. I don't know if this is what they expected. I don't know if this is what they thought they were waiting for, but this is what they got. And it would have been incredibly strange and unsettling and exciting to experience. And I don't know if you noticed it as I read it, but Luke doesn't even really have the exact words to be able to describe what happened. He resorts to analogy. It wasn't a mighty wind. He says it was like a mighty rushing wind. It wasn't exactly fire that rested on them. Whatever they saw was as of fire. Something miraculous, something completely otherworldly, something outside of their experiences happening to them, and they could have never manufactured it on their own. God was doing this. And they knew it was God doing this. One of the reasons that they knew was because it's not like this was without precedent. A lot of times in Scripture when God would appear to his people, it would be in ways like this. He comes to Moses in a burning bush. He leads his people with a pillar of fire and cloud. Isaiah has this vision of God that is all smoke and fire and quaking. 
three of those people in that room had already experienced something like this when they went up on top of the mountain with Jesus and saw him transfigured, saw who he really was. Peter is there and he freaks out when it happens. And that's not unusual. That's often what would happen in these moments. People would find it terrifying and unbearable. But there is a big difference with what happened that morning that breaks with the precedent. And it is really important for us to consider. And that is that they are not terrified. And they are not overcome. And they do not find it unbearable. In fact, they are filled with this incredible joy. And they are filled with incredible power. Later on, Luke will describe this group of people as people that are filled with awe, people that have glad and generous hearts. And I think there's lots of reasons for this, but the one that I want us to think about this morning is tied to what Jesus said to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. He said, look, I'm going away and you're going to have to let me go, but it will be okay. As bad as it sounds, this is actually going to be good for you. And Jesus says it like this. I will not leave you as orphans. I won't leave you as orphans. And this becomes in Scripture, in the New Testament, one of the most important ways that that Scripture writers talk about the work of the Spirit. Paul does this. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says that the Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. That we have the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And that's at least one of the reasons these women and men and children are not terrified that morning. Because they were experiencing for the first time in their lives the love of God the Father in a way that they had never, ever experienced it before. And church, that's one of the things that the Spirit does for everyone who is a Christian. He pours the love of God into our hearts. And he convinces us that we really are God's children, loved to the end, no matter what. I often think of this in personal terms, right? My girls know that I'm their father. It is this undisputable legal fact. And they can look at the birth certificate, and my name is listed on the birth certificate as father. And that's one thing. But when I grab them and I hold them close, I tell them that I love them and that I want the best for them and that I'm for them no matter what, then they know that I'm a father, their father, in a way that a piece of paper could never let them know it because they experience me as a father. And church, let me tell you, this is exactly what those people are experiencing that morning of the first Pentecost. They are experiencing the love of God the Father for them. They're learning to know that love in their bones. They're learning to lean into it. They're learning to live out of the love of the Father. And I want you to know that that is exactly what the Spirit offers to everyone who is a follower of Jesus right now, right here this morning. Jesus was crystal clear about it. I will not leave you as orphans. So church, you are not orphans. We are the children of God. He is with you, and he is for you, and he is for your good, and he is for your flourishing no matter what. And that is the spirit 
That is the work of the Spirit to bear witness to people like us that that is true. And part of growing up as a Christian is learning to ask the Spirit again and again to know that love and to experience that love and to learn from the Spirit how to live out of that love sure and strong for our whole lives, in particular when things are difficult, in particular when we feel alone, in particular when we suffer. That is another meaning of the Pentecost for people like us this morning. So then Luke tells us that they, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. At some point, and Luke doesn't tell us exactly when it happened, this group of people leave that house and they make their way through the streets of the city and they get to the temple where the pilgrims from all over the world have come to celebrate this Pentecost festival. And the racket, Luke says, the the sound of this, whatever was happening with them, the sound of it draws that whole multitude around them. All of these pilgrims gather around these 120 and, and they are completely astonished and they're completely perplexed. They're bewildered because every one of them there, wherever they have come from on the green earth, every one of them there is hearing one of the people from that house speak to them in their own native language. Luke tells us that they hear about the mighty works of God. It is a miracle and this crowd cannot make any sense out of it. Not least because... They know that the people who are speaking to them are mostly from Galilee. Right? That's one of the questions they ask. Are, aren't these people Galileans? Now that question, it might not mean much to us because we are so far removed from that world culturally. But here's what that was really a question about. Here's what they're really saying when they ask that question. Aren't these backwater people? Aren't these uneducated peasants? That's the question. Right? I can hardly understand them when they speak Hebrew. How, how can this be happening? <laughs> and this is one of my favorite things about Pentecost. The first Christians were largely an uneducated, simple people. And they did hail from a dusty, third-rate, backwater part of the country because that was where Jesus was from. (laughs) They did not have much, as the Apostle Paul would later write. They did not have much to commend themselves. Not many of them were wise. Not many of them were powerful. Not many of them had a noble birth. So this is another meaning of Pentecost for people like you and me. It is a great reminder of how God gets things done in his world. (laughs) God loves the foolish and the weak and the low. God loves the despised and the poor and the mourners and the meek. Church, he consistently uses the nothings to topple the things that are. 
I mean, here is a bunch of men and women and children from the backwater of the country. The last 50 days have been nothing for them, if not completely confusing and unsettling. These are not a people who had training to do cultural exegesis. These are not a people who had a savvy politics. These were not wealthy people who knew how to work the markets for their own good. In our modern way of thinking, these were not people who were invited to do TED Talks. Their leader, Peter, was this cowardly guy who had run away from Jesus when it mattered the most. That's who led them. And you know what? None of those facts, absolutely none of those facts become relevant in any important way because God is on the front edge of using those people, those Galileans, to turn the whole world upside down. The harvest is about to get insane beyond their wildest dreams. And that drama that's playing out in the courts of the temple is just the first fruits of an incredible harvest that will come all around them. All around them, they're going to see new life pop up out of nothing. People are going to hear from them that they can know God and be known by him, that he loves them, that he will forgive them. Sick people and widows are going to be cared for. The hungry are going to be fed by those people. God's kingdom is going to grow all around them on earth as it is in heaven. And church, it would be a really big mistake to imagine that somehow God does his work differently now than he did then. Here's how he works. By his spirit, he works in and through a people who are humble enough to learn how to pray And to wait for him. Because the kingdom that he is building is his and not ours. God, by the power of his spirit, works through a people that he loves with a ferocity that will not be thwarted for any reason. He works by the power of his spirit through a people who are learning every day to live strong and to live confidently in the love that the Father has for them. God does his work in the world by the power of his spirit through us, the church. And I love, I love the epilogue to this story. Right? Some of the people in that huge crowd, their, their minds are working overtime to, to create some meaning out of this, to make some sense out of this. They're trying to answer what does this mean? And they come up with this really, really cynical interpretation of what they're seeing. And that is that the first Christians must be drunk. Now, I have no idea how that would explain what it was that they were seeing. But it is interesting to consider, right? (laughs) Right? Maybe their theory was that only people whose inhibitions had been sufficiently lowered, only people who were not quite thinking the way that they should, would do stuff that is this strange. Strange enough to be a people who talk with open hearts about sin and grace and redemption. Strange enough to be a people who give their money away without any strings attached. Strange enough to be a people who forgive the ones that nobody else wants to forgive. Strange enough to love their enemies and to care for the sick that no one will touch and to love their neighbors with the same fervor with which they love themselves. Strange enough to give of themselves for the good of the world. 
I don't know, that sounds an awful lot like Jesus' life and the life that he has made us for. I think we ought to want to have what they're having. (laughs) And by God's grace, because of Pentecost, we have it. The Spirit is ours in abundance, leading us in joy and in power. Let's pray. God, give us whatever it is that we need, the eye of faith and the hands that can cling to this truth, that you speak your love into us by the power of your Spirit, that by the power of your Spirit you give us joy and you give us power to live the life that we have been called to live. Help us to cling to this truth with everything that we have. Help us to do it for our own good and as individuals and our own good as a church and through us, Father, help us to cling to it for the good of this broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.